Welcome to the Wondering Toward Wisdom podcast, where Dr. Joel Schwartz and I, Travis, discuss the intersection of faith and philosophy. We are part of the Tactical Faith Podcast Network. Please visit our site at tacticalfaith.com, check out our blog, our other podcasts, and if you live in Alabama or nearby, we would love to see you at one of our events. If you'd like to help support our ministry, please pray for us, share us with your friends, and consider supporting us financially by going to the Donate tab on our page. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm Joel. I'm Travis. And we're picking up from where we left off with the last podcast, talking about the Euthyphro Dilemma. Uh, the Euthyphro Dilemma, you know, is the idea of, uh, is, can God do whatever he wants and it's good? Or uh, is there some sort of outside thing that um, God's beholden to? Um, at least that's the way it's, it's usually framed. Um, but we ended the last podcast uh, with Travis making the case that Plato would say, well, if this dilemma actually um, bothers you, you have a low view of the gods. And given that it has contemporary application or at least discussion among uh, Christians, um, maybe that, if that bothers you, you have a low view of the triune God. Um, So today I want to, uh, pick up the conversation and and explore what would it mean to have a high view of the God gods for Plato or a high view of the triune God for us as Christians and how does that remove the problem? Right. So, um, well, I think I think first I want to point to to one element that we haven't we haven't really touched on. But relates it, it, it tells us a little bit about why we have, why we tend to have, why we tend to view God the way that we do, and this is uh, this is maybe so evident that I don't even need to say it, but we tend to view God the way we view ourselves, and so uh, or we 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 tend to uh, this is a Feuerbach's famous critique of religion is that it's a projection of human ideals out into the infinite. Uh, I think Feuerbach is wrong that that's where God comes from, but he's not wrong that that's what we tend to do. So we tend to see God to be like us um, in some way. And so uh, and it's it's not unreasonable for us to think that because we are created in Genesis 1. We read that we're created in the image of God. And so there's some element of looking at humans, you should see some sort of reflection of God. But that's a problem when our view of ourselves is all bent out of shape and improperly understood, which it generally is in the way that we live in the world. And so uh, to get to a higher view of God, maybe one of the things, and this is going to sound a little strange, maybe what we need to do is have a slightly higher view of ourselves. And I don't mean that like we got to say that we're, you know, we're all angels or some metaphysical nonsense like that. Uh, we don't become angels when we die. That's metaphysical nonsense. Um, but uh, the... What I want to do is I, I, I want to look at Pla- what Plato was saying about human beings, or at least what he was against in his view of human beings, and we'll see directly how that relates to how we view the gods. So real quickly, Plato um, Plato found himself, if, if you read Plato's dialogues, you can see his, his perennial enemy uh, or in terms of belief systems are the sophists. And the sophists show up over and over and over again. In fact, Euthyphro appears to be, as we'll see, appears to be uh, a seer 
who is also a sophist, or at least his view of the gods is sophistic or sophisticated, we might say. So, but I want to, I want to point to uh, another sophist uh, the, in in Plato's Protagoras. The sophist's name is Protagoras, and he tells a quick story of creation, which I I bring up uh, a lot of times because it's terribly useful for understanding. Uh, bad ways of viewing God. In fact, it, it seems very similar to to uh, the materialistic evolutionary understanding of humanity. And, uh, and a, we, we've talked about it on a previous episode. Yeah, yeah. So uh, it's true. Um, but let me mention it really quickly. Um, so uh, in this story, uh, uh, the gods had made the mortal creatures, all the mortal creatures, but they were to be brought out and given natural powers and those natural powers were, were were to be distributed by Prometheus and his brother Epimetheus. Prometheus is wise. Epimetheus is a bit of a fool. Epimetheus wants the powers, or wants to be able to want, to be the one to distribute the natural powers, and Prometheus unwisely allows him to do so. Uh, so, what are the natural powers? Things like having claws, being fast, being able to hide in small places, being able to swim, being able to fly, having fur, having feathers, so on and so forth. These are the natural powers. Epimetheus hands him out, and he gets a little bit out of hand. And by the time he gets to the last mortal race, which are the human beings, he has run out of natural powers to hand out. And so human beings come out onto the earth, uh, or we're about to come out onto the earth, and we will go extinct in a hurry. Prometheus, and it's the famous story, he stole fire from heaven, but he also stole something like cleverness. It's often translated wisdom, but it's it's more the idea of the capacity the capacity to cleverly make your way around in the world. He stole those in order to help humans. And so that helped save us a little bit, but we're still dying off. And finally Zeus stepped in. He sends her, he said, sends Hermes to give, and this is the important part to give us justice and a sense of shame. And if you look at it, the, uh, and that helps us to bind our, helps bind us together into groups so that civilization, civilization can develop. And when civilization develops, based on this morality that we now have, we can live and, fear, live and flourish. So there's a couple things. First of all, morality is not, na- is not part of what we are naturally. Secondly, morality is merely a means by which it's, it's, it's a necessary, you might almost call it a necessary evil, uh, a necessary constraint so the civilization can form. Um, the idea is that what we fundamentally are are something that that is trying to consume other things. That is, we are creatures of a certain amount of power. The problem is we're too weak, so we need morality so we can bind our bind ourselves together with this kind of fake sense of right and wrong, so that we're so that societies can develop and then we actually have enough power to overcome our environments. That says. That, uh, again, that says that what we fundamentally are are creatures seeking power um, and that morality is not fundamental to us. So th- those are two. And Plato would say those are absolutely false. That's a false view of humanity. That's a low view of humanity, that what is central to us is power and and that morality is simply a tool for us to gain more power. But I mean, this the soft the sophist idea is that when people aren't looking, that's where you are truly fulfilled. When you can step out of that morality, because they they refer to morality as convention, and as another sophist says in the same dialogue, convention 
tyrannizes us. Um, morality tyrannizes. And I think we all feel this in a personal sense, right? We all, we all find, and I, I think as much as we might give the Sunday school answer to, uh, to a comment like this, you might be uncomfortable with my saying it. We all tend to believe that our fulfillment, the true fulfillment of our desires and happiness is found in those things that we're not supposed to be doing. Right. So it's in storing up wealth for ourselves. It's in getting more. Uh, maybe I should just stick with that one because that's the least uncomfortable one to say. But it's in doing those things that we're not supposed to be doing and we wouldn't want people to see us doing. Um, it's in the prideful knocking down of a, someone with whom you disagree. Um, all of those things are the pleasures that we think will fulfill us. And those are out, those are not moral things. Those are all moral or immoral in our view, pursuits of power and control and possession and consumption. So the sophists believe that we're fundamentally animals who, who want power to take and consume, to violate, to make our own. Mm -hmm. And morality is added because we're too weak and we need it so that we'll bind together in societies. Because without morality, we won't live together in societies. We'll keep mistreating each other. So the central element of what we are is power. And morality is a secondary. And power is fundamentally the, the ability to manipulate the world to give you the fulfillment of your desires. Uh, food, sex, uh, honor, authority, power the ability to, con to control other people and other things. Um, that's a low view of humanity. So, so I'm, I know I'm going to hit one of your hot buttons here, but um, it sounds like what you're saying the, with the low view of humanity, it's kind of the pinnacle of this is at least the, the way that uh, the Nietzschean Ubermensch is typically discussed. Not, not, whether or not that's actual Nietzsche's actual position, I want to set to the side because I know that's a whole set of podcasts in itself for you. But um, right. the way that it's typically thought of, it sounds like the Nietzschean Ubermensch, the Superman of Nietzsche, is um, kind of the pinnacle of this of of what you're saying is the low view of humanity. Yeah the uh, the idea. I mean, if if you again, I. I'm going to cringe a little bit. This hurts because I don't think this is precisely what Nietzsche is getting at, but it's, it's, it's relatively close and it's reasonable that people would understand him this way. But if you understand the Ubermensch as the one, so the Ubermensch is a Superman or the Overman who, are, who goes beyond morality, beyond good and evil and recognizes that the, the growth of power is the own, is the true fulfillment of humanity. Right. These are all things that Nietzsche would say, but the way he means power and everything else is not precisely what everyone else would say. But nevertheless, uh, then it sound it would sound very much like this, right? That the idea is and the way the Nazis uh commandeered and twisted Nietzsche's view uh is very much like would arguably very much be very much like that. Right. Um and the thing is we have we have this So maybe maybe I can I don't know if I should do this, but let me let me let me recount a story recently of someone that I know 
who tried to get an event going. And this is a very sweet woman who's trying to do ministry. Um, and it kind of failed. And the story is that another person came up to her and started just criticizing her for it. The, this, this, the former woman, she ended up in tears for the whole time. At the beginning of a Bible study, she started going after over and over again. And every time, every time the woman who had tried to do something and failed, tried to say something, the other woman put her hand up, told her to be quiet as she continued to tell her how things should have been done and why she failed. Then they sat in a Bible study together for an hour and the woman who had just been torn up and down cried the entire time. The, if the, if the woman who is going after her, who are, they're apparently both believers in the church felt a sense of fulfillment in that, that's the bad view of the Nietzschean will to power, right? I was able to, to, to hold you down, to push you down. I was able to overcome you. And it feels good because I overcame another person. I established a kind of authority, which I think most apologetic arguments, whether from atheists or from Christians, tend to fall into that, tend to fall into that category. Um, the kind of prideful, gleeful sense that you get when someone feels like they did a mic drop on someone. It's kind of gross. Uh, it's it's not Christian, which, I mean, the atheists don't care. But but it relates to this, yeah, it relates to this this belief that what, what will fundamentally f fulfill us is getting our way. Okay. That might be the way to put it, right? Um, to get my way. Um, which is just as prevalent among Christians as among others, which I find very disturbing. Um, because that's not at all what Jesus was doing. But anyway, so, so this reflects on our, on our perception of God. So if I view my own being as fundamentally about power, and that morality is really a tool that is used to increase power, which the sophists believe, right? You would, one of the things they were known for was were treating or were teaching people in the art of rhetoric, argument formation. Um, and they were known for being able to argue any side of a position. Why would that be something they would be proud of? Because wouldn't, wouldn't you rather be known for arguing the right position? arguing for the moral side. Well, if you don't believe there is morality, but morality is merely a function of power, it's merely a tool for power, then there's no such thing as the right side, except insofar as it lets you gain more power. So if you think of a sleazy lawyer who doesn't care about truth, but only cares about winning, that's what the sophists were like. What does that tell us about human, human nature if we believe that all that matters is winning? It doesn't matter what the truth is, or it doesn't matter what the right thing, the, the good thing is. It tells us that we believe that morality is not what fulfills us. Rather, the possession of power, the defeating of enemies, the gaining of more 
power for myself is what fulfills me. When we view ourselves that way, we tend to project that, onto, that out onto God. And we see that with Euthyphro. What's the primary characteristic of the gods if you look at Euthyphro's description of the gods? Well, they're at war with one another. They're sleazes. They're constantly having sex with all kinds of different creatures. They're battling over the most important questions of what is good, what is beautiful, what is right, what is just, right? This is stated explicitly in the Euthyphro. If that is the case, then what is fundamental about them is not that they are good. They like to win. But they are powerful. Yeah. So what is piety? Piety is having the right relationship in recognizing that I don't have that much power. The gods have more power. Therefore, piety is what the gods love. And being pious is basically kissing up to the gods. Be the problem is that leads us to that leads us to a serious a serious problem. If piety is a virtue, and it's merely kissing up to those in more those with more power, then it it will vary based on who the god is, right? And that leads that leads to well, then it's what all the gods love. Okay, well, what is it? Do all the gods love virtue? Well, no, because they seem to be just as confused about it as we are, right. because they're battling over the most the central virtues. So. It's based on the whim of the gods. Um, we don't have, and, and I guess the most important element about that with Plato is we therefore have no sense of what piety could be or what it's like. It's like saying something like, uh, what is, if I were to say, let's say I didn't know anything about colors and i said what is blue and you were to respond well it's the color that most boys like or something like that i don't know i mean that's i know that's probably something i've insulted a bunch of people but let's just say or let's say there's a group of people who all like blue it's their favorite color right well it's what all the people in the house like i'm like yeah but that doesn't tell me anything about what blue is right all you've told me is that these people have a preference for it they're having a preference for it doesn't tell me anything about the essential nature of what blue is. Right. It's, it's, it's pointing to people who feel a certain way rather than something that we can actually yeah. wrap our it's, minds you around. You might say it's an, it's an accidental property. If we were to bring in philosophy speak, it's an accidental property blue to blue. Blue can still be blue, even if nobody in there likes it. Right. It's just, right. it's purely by accident. It's purely, an accidental feature of the world that these people like it. Now, if you're in relationship with these people, that might actually have some value. If you're, yes. if you're in a meaning, meaningful relationship and, and you say, Oh, it's the thing that these people like, Oh, well then that means something to you because you know them and you know, the kinds of the, you know, their character, you know, um, those things about them that, um, that 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 give that give content to to that uh, idea. So that yeah. might not be a, an, an essential property, but the accidental property might be a better way for you to understand it yourself. Yeah. If if well, if we were talking about something perhaps a little less trivial than favorite colors, 
Um, if we were to talk about something like, like we have a friend who his judgment on movies is much better than critics judgment on movies. If he likes a movie, we feel like we, we have, and we know him. We feel like if he likes a movie, it's probably going to be a movie that we enjoy. We don't agree with him all the time, but we know something about his character. And because of, we know something about his character and his habits and so on and so forth. If he recommends a movie, it's probably going to be a good movie. Um, in the same way, if somebody says, well, let's set that aside. So, yeah, I mean, that, that does tell you a little bit, but it's still it's still coming at it from another angle. It's a little bit different. It's a little bit different if the if the thing we're talking about is somehow connected with the very character of the person that, you know. So so that's that's kind of where I'm 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 hoping to steer this a little bit. You know, we're talking about the low view of humans, the low view of the gods. So what does a high view of humanity or a high view of the gods for Plato or for us, a high view of the triune God, what is, what does that look like as far as the fundamental nature of those, of those things? And how can that connect us to the euthyphro? Right. So I think, I think the first thing we need to start with is sort of a negative approach. And I don't mean bad. I mean, saying what, if there's a high view of God, it can't be this. And this is where we can get into a little bit of hot water um, uh, with some Christians, perhaps. Bring Uh, it on. Though though probably not if if they're paying close attention to Scripture. So part of what we have to cut away from uh, a view of God, if we want to get away from a low view of God, is we need to recognize that the central characteristic of God or the most fundamental characteristic of God cannot be power. If we understand God as fundamentally power or powerful, and then all these other things are like, that's you, we might say if God's essential property is power and then we start now I might need to qualify it a little bit. We start adding these other things like God is good. God is loving so on and so forth. If those are secondary attributes, but God's fundamental attribute is power, then I think we're falling into something like the Euthyphro dilemma because then we don't, it seems like then morality is merely a tool of his power. So for example, you hear atheists say a lot, or at least I have, say a lot that, and and with good reason, if you understand God is fundamentally power, God created everything to glorify himself. And so God is fundamentally a powerful being that creates other beings to worship him. Doesn't that sound awfully selfish? Well, if God is fundamentally power, yes. Because then mor- morality is the tool to force people to worship him. Right. And let's let's remind remind our, our audience that when we're talking about power, we're talking about the ability to get people to do what you want kind of thing. Yes, because I think there is a biblical power manifested in Jesus, the overcoming of death, the pure, the power, what we might call for lack of a better way of putting it, the power of the, the power that is manifested in the Holy spirit or through the Holy spirit, which is distinct from what I, I like to call empire power. And I'm just pulling from particularly Luke acts, but it's all throughout scripture. It's, it's hard not to see it. Um, but the power of empire is a power. Ultimately, it's the power to force people to do what you want by threatening them with death. 
death and exclusion are really the two. The power of the Holy Spirit is the power to draw in and to give life. Um, The power of life is stronger than the power of death. The power of love overcomes death. Um, But that's, that, that is, but when we, when we use the the term power, what we mean, we, it's hard for us to talk about a power that's other than that because our, our understanding of power is generally the power to control other people. Why? Because we live in a corrupt world and we ourselves are corrupt. We view God, we even view God in those terms, but God has never described. We don't read in first John that God is power, right? We, but we do read that God right. is love and we do read where Jesus who comes as a servant and said, and gets down and washes his disciples feet when, you know, and this is one of my favorite, it's become one of my favorite passages because it's, it was a real wake up call to me when Philip says, if you could just show us the glory of the father, then we'll be satisfied. And Jesus looks at him somewhat dumbfounded. Like, what are you talking about, Philip? Do you not see me? If you have seen me, you have seen the father, which means the father is a servant. We tend to see God as the one with power and Jesus, the one who come and has to do the dirty work of being a servant, but then we can get back to be in power. Um, but that's so, but I mean, that's sort of off track, but it's not, it's getting us to like Christianity does offer this unique view of God where God is not fundamentally his, his, his essential characteristic isn't what we should call here empire power. It's rather the, it's rather this power of life giving love, right? And we see that you keep saying, not just God, you keep saying the triune God. Well, that's where the love is, right? God is eternally in love. God, the Father loving the Son, both through the Holy Spirit or loving the Holy as Trinity yeah. is beyond me to some extent. Right. But there's something right. like that going on, right? And when the Holy Spirit enters the enters the, the people of God, they draw together in love and become a single entity that we call the body of Christ. And, um, and, and so I, th- I think what, I think you would be on board saying that if the fundamental attribute of God is love, that all the other things that God also is described in scripture have to be understood through the lens of love. And so when we say that God is a just God, well, it's, it's a, it's a just it's a justice that comes through love when it says that God is a jealous God. It's a jealousy that is grounded in, in, in a self-giving love, which what is that? I mean, I think that just blows our conception of jealousy. That's not me saying that that's what Jesus says to Philip. Right. I mean, not, not in so many words. He says, if you have seen me, you have seen the father. Well, we we see that in in John one eighteen too, when when John says, "No one has seen God until Jesus showed up." Yeah, and we all say Jesus is the clearest manifestation. Well, what what is the clearest manifestation of who Jesus is? Where was he lifted up on the cross? Yeah, self self giving, life giving, love. That's fundamentally who God is. By virtue of that. And we could get into some heavy metaphysical stuff. We could start drawing on, you know, scholars like Zizulus and Colin Gutton and all this other kind of stuff. Uh, Colin McGinn. No, which 
I always get McGinn and Gutton. It's, it's Gutton. It's Gutton. Gutton. McGinn's the Mysterian guy with the right. philosophy mind stuff. Um, sorry about that, folks. Uh, you are all are making fun of me right now. Um, Rightfully sorry. so. <laughs> yeah, and, and you should keep doing it. Um, but uh, but we can start digging into that. But but I, I don't want to get there necessarily. I just want to. So coming back to the youthful dilemma, if if it's power, and if you think about it, power is in opposition to everything. I if I am fundamentally about this empire power, what I'll call empire power, then my goal is to control and possess, to crush, to make my servant. It's almost like Hegel's master slave dilemma or uh, dialectic, where the goal you run, you run across another being and you recognize an equal and you must crush them down. Right. And there's a whole interesting thing about that, but, uh, that's empire power. Um, if that's the case, then morality is, and if that's who God fundamentally is, then that's what being fundamentally is, is power. And if being is fundamentally power, morality is merely a tool for power, which means if you tell me morality is what God loves, that doesn't tell me anything, except it's something useful to God, which comes up in Thrasymachus's critique of justice in, in the book one of, Republic, of the Republic, where he says, justice is is merely the advantage of the stronger. Right. That's not what morality is in our view. No. But does that mean that morality is a standard that stands over above God? No, because Christianity doesn't have to deal with that dilemma, right? That's the youth of road dilemma. It's either a tool in the hands of an arbitrary God, mm -hmm. or it's something under which God himself, the triune God, they must labor. But that's not true. What what morality is, is the character of God that comes out in creation. God is eternally in loving relationship. So what is morality? Well, you can sum it up in, I can sum it up in two commands. Love God, love your neighbor. Yeah. All the law and the prophets are summed up in these two commands. Why is that morality? Because love is the fundamental nature of being itself. Not power, but love. Because love is the fundamental nature of being, all morality is about love. And, and for me to know, this is why to say it's what God loves or God cares about, I can learn what morality is by knowing God. Why? Because God is loving. Mm -hmm. It's not power. If it's power, then it's purely by accident that, it's, that something is right or wrong. God could, like people say, God could command us to torture and murder babies, right? But that's not who God is. That's not who the Christian God is. Right. That might be the God of the philosophers, but it's not the God of Christianity. Right. Who is the triune God? And so uh, how I end my last bit on this, basically, um, on the blog, is with that, all problems with arbitrariness of an evil God who would abuse or attack the nature of his creatures falls away. We are made in the image of God. All creation comes from the character of God, and the character of God is fundamentally loving. Could God have now the question we could go in is could there be another type of type of God? I think the answer is no, but that's another podcast. Yes. <laughs> if we ever get to that. Um uh we'll have to get pretty deep into some heavy stuff to get there. But the simple the youth of road dilemma falls away when you recognize that all things are created in out of the character of God, and God's character is fundamentally loving because God is eternally in in loving relationship. If, God, if there were not a trinity, if God were a single entity, then God could not eternally be in love. 
except eternally narcissistically. Yes. In which case, the critique of atheists that God created all things to worship him, and therefore he's an arrogant narcissist, and morality is merely a tool of his power, is actually an effective critique. But that doesn't work for Christianity, because we have this crazy idea of the Trinity, which is the most amazing, paradoxical, wonderful thing that makes Christianity utterly unique and stands up to issues like the youth of dilemma. So let me ask a question. Let, let me ask a rubber hits the road kind of question. So I think there are, I, I don't think what we've said, um, the words themselves are very controversial. However, I do know people, I know Christians who would say something terrible happens and it's God showing his love to me. And I just, God's love is just so big, so wonderful, so magnificent, so beyond us that um, we, we don't, we may not experience it as love, but it's God's love uh, being manifested. Is this something, how, how does that map onto what, what you've, what, what we've said about God's fundamental attribute being love. Yeah, this is this reminds me of a conversation I had with a I had with a friend of mine, um, who I think he he seems to think that power is the fun, most fundamental thing because one what how he described what God was God is in charge, and any understanding we have of love has to has to we when we talk about love, we're so anthropomorphized or we're so, we make it's, we're so corrupt with sin about what love is that we can't even understand what it is, but we do understand clearly what power is, which I thought was ironic, right? Uh, power, we, we, our sin does not corrupt our understanding of power, but our sin, but sin does corrupt our understanding of love. I'm like, I think sin corrupts our understanding of both. And it's Jesus who clarifies this. Um, Jesus dying at the hands of the Romans doesn't sound like the kind of power I normally think about. No. People forgiving, though, Jesus on the cross forgiving those who are killing him doesn't sound like the power. Well, but that's Jesus. That's not God the Father. We go back to Philip. If you've seen right. me, you've seen the Father. Right. So, so, but we, we do have a, conf I think there's something right about this that our view of love clearly is confused, right? I mean, especially in our contemporary society, love means something like God as pleasure maximizer. Right? Or, or God reduces warm, effect, yeah, I mean, warm, effective affection or warm feelings of affection. Yeah. Something like, something like that. And I don't, I think God's love is clearly be beyond my understand. I mean, Jesus talks about, you know, you, though you're sinful, know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will God, you know, who truly is good and who truly is full of love. So what does love look like? Does it look like Job? The story of Job. Did God love Job? Yes. Yep. Um, and then we get weird passages like Jacob, I loved, but Esau, I hated. Um, this is not, I'm not saying this whole issue is easy and the details working out are unclear, but does God love us? Yes. 
Does that mean everything's going to go right in our lives? No. Does that you know, mean everything's going to go the way that God wants them to in our lives? I'm, I will answer that question. And I'll say, <laughs> you know. Yeah. I mean, does God, lo- does God want us to sin? I mean, I think, I think I don't, no matter what position you take on this, you, you can either divide God's will up into the permissive and the, anyway, or whatever. It would be weird to say that God wants us to sin. Right. Uh, that God wants us to, you know, whatever, but there are times I, I let, let me, let me put it this way, because this is a, this is a struggle I've had in my own life. And I think a lot of men have this struggle and I've probably brought this up, but over and over again, I, I hear this over and over and over again from men. Women probably have the same issue, but I don't talk to women cause they're scary and confusing, but, uh, that they feel that God loves them. And they use, when they use the word love, they mean something like he sees me as a charity case, but God doesn't like me. Yeah. Right. This is the Brennan Manning and the ragamuffin gospel thing, right? Does God, no, God actually, likes you mm-hmm. right uh does he like your sin no does he like does he appreciate all the all the garbage you're doing <laughs> no does he does he like the fact that we're faithless and so on and so forth no but he does like you and and that that love is an is a genuine like and fate part of faithlessness is i think believing or part of having a weak faith is believing that god doesn't like us yeah. And when I think that God doesn't like me, it's partly because I view him as fundamentally in power. Why? Because I view my own life that I view myself that way. I view my fulfillment in getting more stuff for myself. And so you see all this stuff is, is tangled up together to view God correctly is to begin to see ourselves correctly, to begin to see ourselves correctly is to begin to understand God a little bit better. Um, and it's why it's how it's because that's how sin corrupts our understanding of God, theology, and so on and so forth. Because sin makes me twist me into believing that getting more stuff is how I fulfill myself to corrupt, to take, to consume, to violate, so on and so forth. That's how I'm that's how I'm fulfilled. And so then I begin to reflect that on God, and God Himself becomes a God of consumption, destruction, uh, narcissism, and selfishness. And why wouldn't I worship a God who looks like me? <laughs> Well, so I don't think that answers your question, but I think that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, well, you know, I I don't like playing this card, but in my dissertation, <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I I wrote a lot about you know the subjective about our experience of ourselves, of, of our dignity, of the dignity of others, and how that is about being in the image of God, and what what does that even mean, and. Um, I mean, this, that's at least one podcast, if not two or three, um, for us right. to do another time. But um, yeah, the the way – if we understand ourselves as having value because we are in the image of God, that that really changes everything because then it's no longer we're, we're charity cases that God puts up with, but rather we – you know, God sees our value and comes after us. You know, he yeah. – he 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 wants to be with us. It's not um, a reluctant like this is what I'm supposed to do kind of thing. It's no, it, it's 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 a um, 
you know, it's it's the shepherd going after the lost, leaving the ninety nine to get to find the lost sheep. It's it's the yeah. the woman who turns the house upside down for the lost coin. Um, I mean, it, it's if if that's what God is true, you know, if that's who God truly is, um, the, the idea of of God putting up with us just doesn't really make a lot of sense. Right. Yeah. I, and it's, 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 it's so interesting in my own life, how much my perception of God is utterly anti-biblical in terms of my personal right. feelings, my personal feelings. They're totally not. And so I'll read through these passages where God is just declaring over and over again, his love for us. You know, most importantly, you know, going through the, the season of Good Friday and Easter or Lent, recognizing how much God cares for us. I let sin determine how I view God. Now, am I sinful? Yes. Am, does God hate sin? Yes. Does God hate me? No. Unless I'm Esau, and we have to answer that question. Um, well, I mean, it, it's, it's the reality that you are more than your sin. And that's I, why God hates sin. Because it destroys it, it undermines his creation. Yes, it, it, it it's a it's a um, it's sin makes the dignity of the image of ha- of having the image of God in you more difficult for you to see and for others to see. Right. Yeah, and then it makes God more difficult to see. Yes. Not that he's easy to see either way, but but I mean we do see him in in the in the person of Jesus. Right. 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 Okay. Well, I, I think we, we've we've answered this while opening up about fifty other questions that, that people <laughs> might have, that are good questions, that are important questions, that that are questions that um, I hope that we can can be addressing, whether through the blog or through uh, future episodes. Um, but you know the the big t- takeaway that I, I I I personally hope you're getting from this is you know, God is exactly like Jesus. And, you know, while, you know, and, and, and not, you know, this didn't happen in the incarnation, but God has always been exactly like Jesus. And so if that's the case, then what does it mean to serve God? What does it mean for God to be righteous and holy? Well, it means that God's love. And, and that's what everything else hinges on, is that God is love, that God is Jesus. And that looks beautiful while also terrifying because if you're like me, that's not the, – the realization of that came much later in life than, uh, than you would prefer. And so it kind of undermines a lot of the things that you grew up with, um, right. the, the ideas you've had. But – I think it's a starting point that to 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 build an, a, a theology, to build an understanding of God, to build an apologetic that that can do that can reach people in a way that um, that an apologetic of of argumentation of of victory of triumph um, just probably doesn't do as well. Um, it, it, it makes it more difficult to reach others, but at least in my experience, it made it more difficult for me to reach myself. Um, if that makes sense. Right. So, um, 
I look forward to continuing these discussions. Um, I, I enjoy this and I'm, I'm glad that I appreciate that you uh, invite us into your lives and, and listen to us babble about these things. Absolutely. If there's anyone there. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, mom. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for listening. Uh, and uh, if you're there and if you'd like to check out any of our other podcasts or blogs, please check out the website, tacticalfree.com. Uh, anyway, this is Travis. This is Joel. And thanks for listening. Have a great day.